0: Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once you've done it. In today's episode, we're joined by Keir Adrian Gray, a writer and former social justice warrior from Vancouver, British Columbia. We discuss exiting the nexus, making amends to those we've cancelled, and the freedom of thinking for ourselves.
1: Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Tout la journée, Bonjour,
2: hi. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour. Hi. Bonjour.
0: Welcome back to Fucking Cancel. Welcome
2: back to Fucking Cancel.
0: We're here with our friend, um, Kier Adrian Gray, who is a writer from Vancouver. And, um, I was really stoked to hang out with Kira last time I was in Vancouver which was awesome we went mm-hmm. for a walk and uh reminisced about the like utter depravity of like Montreal circa like 2013 um, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's the uh the milieu that we both uh came out of um so yeah we're super stoked to have Kira here on the show how's it going Kira?
1: Oh, it's going great happy to be here yeah right on right on. Start on the pod. Yeah. So
2: do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do?
1: Yeah, so um, I am a writer. Um, I wrote a series this spring called Confessions of a Former SJW, where I got into my involvement as a true believer in the social justice subculture. And more generally, I'm really interested in the complexity of agency, um, the search for transcendence, and how far people will go in order to belong. Those are some mm-hmm. themes that sort of run through my work.
0: Yeah, no big deal, right? Um, <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Okay. So you started your current like writing project, um, your Substack. Um, by sort of like coming out as like a former social justice warrior, right? Um, I think is how you put it. Um, how did you how did you first become involved with social justice culture? What was that process for like for you?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think it came out of getting involved in the anarchist scene in Montreal. Mm. I think that came first. Um, it's a little bit blurry to me how I got from like Kropotkin and Bakunin and anarcho-syndicalism to being so fixated on the particular words that I was using and mm. sort of such a focus on like the aesthetics and, and representational type of stuff. Um, but I think it was just gradual. It had to do with who I was hanging out with and I was really looking to be told what to do. In hindsight, I wanted to be good. I wanted Um, to help make the world a better place. And I was really drawn to having this whole system that sort of laid it all out for me where I could determine what was good and what was bad. And, um, I didn't have to make those sorts of calls by myself. And mm. I think that that really appealed to me when I was younger.
0: It's ironic for an anarchist.
1: <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> There's so many contradictions. Like I, I I struggle with that, that like some of the sweetest, warmest people I know were also involved in, you know, tearing each other Um, apart at other other points within the subculture Mm -hmm, totally Mm -hmm. Um, so you want
2: to tell us a bit about like what it was like for you inside this subculture Um, just give us some of the the rundown on that experience
1: yeah so I think I got really I think it really affected my mental health. Um, I think that I became really fixated on being uh, good in every in every thought that I was having mm-hmm. because it felt like when I after I learned about you know internalized racism, internalized homophobia, and all this stuff, that started to feel like you know bad thoughts made me a bad person Mm -hmm. and it's strange looking at it now because it feels so religious Mm -hmm. right to be that hard on myself around something that I have very little control over Mm -hmm. and so I feel like a lot of my experience in the subculture was so internal or at least the torturous parts of it were really Mm -hmm. internal and it makes it kind of hard to make sense of because I'm like did anyone explicitly tell me to start beating myself up this way? Like what was the process of getting to the point where I hated myself and I thought I was bad and I was so paranoid, not only that I might say something that was unknowingly oppressive, but I might think something that was unknowingly oppressive. Mm -hmm. Um, so things like my social anxiety were through the roof. I was really convinced that, you know, everybody around me hated me. Um, I had a really hard time speaking my mind at all or just speaking. I would be really, really quiet in group settings. Um, and I also didn't create anything. <laughs> I I didn't write. I didn't make art. Um, I was involved in some organizing, community organizing, but nothing that lasted very long. Mm -hmm. It felt like everyone sort of moved in and out of these organizations, or most people moved in and out of these organizations pretty quickly, and a lot of them would sort of cease to exist after some sort of conflict, interpersonal conflict came up within the group
0: yeah we have we have follow-up questions about a bunch of that that you just mentioned um but can you like I I obviously remember it but can you like tell our listeners a bit about what that scene was like in Montreal around that time
1: yeah so I was there a little bit earlier I was there in 2010 and um I feel like I was a bit of a hermit at the time like I mostly hung out with my roommates (laughs) Mm-hmm. So I could say with them that there, I don't know, there was like this fervor. We mm-hmm. all like had so much energy and we wanted to like do good things with it. And I think that was before the student protests came in. Mm-hmm. I think that was a little bit later. So I i think I was there sort of when some of that energy was kicking up Um, And I definitely remember hearing about bad people, like knowing that there were certain people to not get involved with and a lot of sort of whisper network Mm -hmm. type of stuff, which I don't think I had been uh, that exposed to when I was before I got to Montreal, when I was more involved in like um, environmental NGO land, which is what I was involved in previously. So yeah, I think that there was sort of a fair amount of, um, kind of tiptoeing around each other and, uh, suspicion about kind of finding out who the true believers were, who was like a true anarchist, right? I think authenticity was really important. Mm -hmm. And I think there were various ways to signal that, Um, I think like not taking care of yourself really stands out to me as one of the signs at the time, like, like poor hygiene was like, I don't, you know, (laughs) I'm so dedicated to the cause. I don't have time to shower like that. (laughs) That felt like a thing. (laughs) Um, and same thing with just, you know, being able to work, 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 you know, if you're involved in a particular political project, sort of work yourself into the ground. Um, Whoever said yes to everything was the best and anyone who sort of had limitations, um, any sort of limitations could be perceived as like a lack of dedication to the cause.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, It's interesting, Jay and I have talked about this a bunch because I'm from Ontario and like I, most of my experience with this culture happened in Toronto um, and it's like very specific to Montreal that like, it's so connected with anarchism, I think, because in Toronto, like there were anarchists, but at least in my experience of social justice culture, like the anarchists were more often seen as like, kind of like manarchists, you know, and like, mm. were kind of like, it wasn't seen at least in the, the scenes that I was in, it was not seen as like the heart of like intersectional, like social justice, anti-O stuff, you know, it was like kind of off to the side. Um, whereas in, um, Montreal, it seems like the two things were like completely like one was coming out of the other. Like they were like bound together and like all the stuff about like, yeah, like the, the dirty punk aesthetic was definitely not the thing in like social justice culture in Toronto when I was coming up. So I always find like the differences, really interesting and striking because jay and i talk about this stuff all the time like comparing and contrasting like montreal versus toronto um during those years and i'm sure there's like different genesis of this in different like cities and stuff um but one thing i kind of want to pull out of of what you're saying because i think a lot of like our listeners they obviously know what you're talking about because the majority of our audience they are people who are uh who were in this culture and are either exiting or have exited this culture um or got canceled out of it but i think for people outside of it they're kind of like what are you talking about because like you, you know what i mean like you're talking about this like paranoia this fear this hypervigilance this like self monitoring um looking for badness inside of yourself and others um and i guess like I'm wondering if you could say more like concretely about, cause you were like, I, you were saying like, I don't feel like anyone ever told me, you know, that I was bad, but like, you clearly got that message somehow. Right. Yeah. So like, do you have a sense of like, what it is that you were witnessing or like what was happening around you that was like contributing to or producing this intense hypervigilance within yourself?
1: That's a great question. I think there's a couple things. I think number one is I do suspect that people who already secretly think they're bad are more Mm -hmm. likely to end up in this subculture. I think people, yeah, who came from like a, a high conflict family and who, you know, feel comfortable in these environments. Um, I think that that's part of it. So, you know, I've met some people who just grew up in a really stable environment um, and saw right from the beginning how (laughs) ridiculous sort of the norms of the subculture were and and totally avoided it. So I think that's one thing I'll say is like, I think there might be a predisposition. And I, I think I kind of already suspected that I was bad for various older reasons before I got involved with the subculture. Um, but I think, you know, if I wanted to sort of break down the worldview for people who hadn't been involved, um, it's, all about these, like I think we're talking about anti oppression, the anti oppression mm-hmm. framework. And yeah. Yeah. what that really does is it splits people into the privileged and the oppressed, right? And we have these categories of privilege, such as white or cisgender or wealthy, and then we have corresponding oppressed categories. And The funny thing about this is that, like, on a super high up level, like when we're not talking about individual people, I think that there might be some merit to, like, these categories. But I think one of the major missteps that has happened is we're taking this analysis and applying it to individual people in this extremely like neurotic way so everybody in the subculture is trying to figure out like where do I fit on this hierarchy like oh I'm I'm white but I'm also a woman and then I have disabilities but I'm from a wealthy background and it's just sort of this crazy making because you're like well you know oppressed is good not being <laughs> oppressed, but being an oppressed person yes. gives you authority within the subculture, yeah. right? And so I think another thing that happens in the subculture is people look for oppressions and they want to mm-hmm. find ways that they can speak about being oppressed because that's sort of the social credit system. Mm-hmm. Um, So I think when it comes to, you know, the fact that no, no one person was like, you should feel really bad about yourself. Um, the fact that that was lacking, yeah, it doesn't mean that I didn't get that messaging from it because what I was really hearing is that privileges are lifelong and it means that you are actively hurting people all the time right. just by existing. And that is an idea that I have come to have a lot of problems with. (laughs) And that really, you know, is really painful um, for people to sort of grapple with, you know. And I think that there are a lot of like really casual things that get said in these spaces that do really reinforce the idea that these, you know, markers of privilege make you a bad person.
0: Yeah, and and I think that um, something that I heard, like, all the time in the, you know, anarchist scene in Montreal um, 10 years ago was, like, stuff about how, like, there was definitely some people who were really, really bad, right? And, like, people would, like, talk about that all the time, right? And, like, maybe they weren't saying it to your face that you were that person, although sometimes they were. Um, but they were talking about different categories of people that were super, super bad that we're oppressors um, in various ways. But, you know, it was, it was like often um, spoken about with this really charged language, like calling people scum and like that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And so, you know, you were internalizing the message that there's definitely some extremely bad people out there and you better not be one of them. Right. I think that's like one of the Mm -hmm. things that really like, really like filtered through into my consciousness is that like, you know, um, people who I care about, who are my community, who I'm like spending a lot of time with, think that these other kinds of people are garbage they're trash they're scum they're you know what i mean and so it's like you know you you really better watch your step because you could end up in that category
2: i also think i I want to pull out something you were saying here that i think is important because i think the insight that you that you had about how like the framing is that just by being in a category that is considered privileged means that you are actively causing harm like regardless of what you're doing or not doing just existing in that like because it's
0: the complicit thing yes like
2: you're complicit and also the idea that you are like directly benefiting from other people's oppression all the time and so like regardless of what you're doing you're benefiting from that and then some of the way that that plays out is that if other people do fucked up things to you whether that range from them like crossing your boundaries or just being like super rude or like dominating over you or like ordering you around or being disrespectful it's considered that it's like fair for them to do that because it's, it's seen as them, like, I guess, um, like punching up. The idea is, is that because you, by existing in this privileged identity are causing all of this harm, regardless of what you're doing or not doing, it's fair for other people to like attack you. And so you have, and if you are upset about that in any way, and you say like, I don't feel good about being attacked then that's seen as like fragility and it's seen as causing more harm. So there's this way in which it's very like producing a submissive stance where it's like seen as your role to actually like not have any boundaries or to not stand up for yourself and to basically let people treat you like shit if they have certain marginalized identities that you don't have.
0: Yeah, because it assumes that some people are sort of essentially responsible for yes. all of these bad things in the world exactly um through their identity categories and if they're responsible then they're guilty exactly. and if they're guilty they can like it doesn't really matter what you do to them yeah. you know um mm-hmm. yeah I want to like switch tacks like a little bit and uh talk about relationships in this subculture and um you've written about this and I'm, I'm interested to hear what you had to say about this but like How do you think that being in this subculture um, impacted your friendships, your relationships, your ability to have friendships? Um, Tell us about that.
1: Well, I got rid of most of my friendships um, because (laughs) those people weren't radical enough. And I didn't think that I could be friends with anyone with whom I had the most minor disagreement. Um, Even like a really gentle, curious disagreement was um, too much usually. And if I couldn't sort of, rant someone into agreeing with me, then I would start to pull away. So that was the first thing was just like the vast majority of people on the planet were off limits friendship wise. Right. And even like being nice to being nice to someone <laughs> outside of the subculture was like a little suspicious. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so that was the first thing. Um, My friendships, I mean, within the subculture were really intense partially as a result of that, because we, it was so insular, right? Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people had also cut off their family members. That was very common for various reasons. Um, And so we really relied heavily on each other. Um, I think there were, there was a lot of suspicion towards uh, psychiatry Mm -hmm. and psychology and like any sort of like mental health treatment that involved a professional. And so I think to me, that was like a massive part of what was going on in the subculture is that we were trying to sort of fill that gap for each other. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who are really struggling very profoundly, including myself with mental health issues. And I don't know there like in hindsight, it feels like a lot of what we were doing was a little bit backwards because we didn't know what we were doing. Um, but so I think it it kind of resulted in a very intense relationships, very volatile relationships. Ones that kind of swung from like, this person is everything to me to like, I never want to talk to this person again. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that could be attributed to us being in our early 20s. But I think the isolation and the sort of hostility towards like more traditional ways of feeling better um, was really big. And I also think very few of us were like eating well or exercising Mm. or like doing, you know, getting enough sleep, (laughs) kind of (laughs) taking care of ourselves in in these really um, basic ways. And those things were almost even looked down upon, (laughs) Mm. some of them anyway, like, um, as if, uh, it wasn't, those things weren't important enough. And again, could possibly mark you as someone who wasn't like fully dedicated to the cause.
2: Mm. It's so interesting, um, I don't want to talk about this too too much, but like the differences between like social justice culture, Montreal versus social justice culture, Toronto, I think are like really striking to me because I feel like in Toronto it was like self-care or die. Like everyone was like everyone was like, we're all like people were getting like tattoos of their meds bottles, and like everyone was like, you need to be doing self-care. And like if anyone was like, if anyone was like, you are like, um like if you were like being like you are you need to take part in this action or something and someone was like i'm too like ill or like i'm i'm not well enough to do that you would be seen as like super ableist you know so i feel like like i feel like that it was really different in toronto because people were very like it's very important to self-care at all times yeah
0: i really think that montreal has this like montreal is very fucking grimy and people like move to montreal just immediately become anarchist punks like within like four weeks you know um, and it's just like, it's such a thing, you know, yeah. and I think it really impacts the way that these things play out in the two cities. It's super interesting. to yeah. me.
2: It's really interesting. Yeah. Cause Yeah, totally. I think I think Toronto social justice culture was very pro psychiatry.
1: Um, so wow. yeah, yeah. Um, I do want to note a lot of my experiences are in Vancouver as well. So okay. Just... Yeah.
2: And yeah. it's curious to know.
1: Vancouver is like, also grimy though. <laughs> yeah. Vancouver is super grimy. Yes, okay. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, everything molds in like five minutes here, so. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, okay, so in in your uh, sub stack, we saw you writing that, um, that you had shut down your ability to think critically. Um, and so when you were in this subculture, you weren't really thinking critically or thinking for yourself. Can you tell
1: us more about that? Oh, yeah. I mean, there was like a devotional aspect, right, where there were these various texts that were very important. Those texts also were kind of constantly shifting. um, But those sort of told you what to think and what to say. Um, And I didn't question those things, right? It was it was sort of like the opposite of an ad hominem attack where you, you decide that an idea is bad because of who is saying it. I would decide that an idea had to be good because of who was saying it. Right. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that had to do with like how many marginalized identities did that person have and like how highly regarded were they by people around me? Um, so I just sort of went with the flow and it felt more important to me to like defend to the ends of the earth, these various slogans, whether or not they fully made sense to me. Um, And I couldn't really defend them on the level of ideas. Mm. So as soon as someone pushed back, my job was to smear them and to call them a bad person because then whatever they said didn't matter. Um, and that was sort of the extent of my ability <laughs> to debate or argue with people about any of these ideas. And I think part of it was because they were, a lot of them were really fragile. I, I couldn't back them up, right? Um, the only reason that I believed in them is because I thought it made me a good person to believe in them. But as soon as someone like had questions for me, um, I would basically verbally attack them. That was that was the extent of it. And that's part of why I got rid of everyone in my life who disagreed with me is because that was really uh, exhausting and awful. And um, of course, it also reinforced for me the idea that I was like sort of being persecuted, that I was part of like mm-hmm. this small political minority. And it's almost like we saw, Um, disagreement or conflict as like evidence that we were on the right track right
0: yeah which is you know something that that subculture shares with uh many new religious movements um Mm -hmm. yeah um and obviously okay so like being in a state of mind where you're sort of like actively training yourself not to think through ideas to carefully, uh, like, you know, just in case you (laughs) discover that they don't make any sense, um, is a very unstable place to be in, like mentally and intellectually. Um, And you've written a lot about this. Um, How did this impact your mental health? Like, what was that process like for you? I think it's it's an important part of this whole thing for you. Um, And um, for a lot of people that I know, I was actually talking to somebody else recently who was also in Montreal around that time um and who has also been on like a long journey of sort of like like exiting and and trying to like reclaim um their themselves um and they were talking about how they know multiple people particularly in montreal um who like literally like lost their minds because of this because of this subculture who like completely fucking lost it Um, and i definitely know some of those people too Um, so yeah tell us about that
1: Well, I did completely lose my mind. Um, (laughs) I did end up in the psych ward against my will uh, twice, um, sort of within my time within this subculture. And the reasons for that are complicated, obviously, like usually there's not like one factor that, you know, causes someone to um, completely disconnect from reality. But I was just miserable. I was so miserable all the time. I was so suspicious. I was paranoid. I thought that I was hated. I thought that I was hated personally. And I thought that I was hated, you know, based on my identities. I thought I was hated based on my politics. Um, And I was I went into so many interactions so aggressively that I was constantly having more and more evidence of being hated. Um, And there is also a fragility part like this is one of the things that I feel like this subculture does so differently than professional therapists. Mm -hmm. When it comes to triggers, generally, the idea is in a safe and super gradual way To expose yourself to those triggers so that eventually they have less and less power. Mm -hmm. Whereas within the subculture, it's about not only avoiding them, but like it's everyone else's responsibility to like make sure that they are avoided for you. To like eradicate Um, them. Yeah, eradicate it. Exactly. You know which always struck me as so funny because triggers can be so random too, right? Like they're, you know, what triggers one person would be completely surprising to someone else. So, um, but yeah, so I think um, the misery was the big part, but I think the misery stemmed from a larger feeling of helplessness. I felt like I would never be able to accomplish anything. I felt like you know everything was stacked against me um there is no point in even trying um everything was too hard and um yeah so i don't know how it's possible to feel okay if that's your orientation towards the world
2: absolutely yeah it's it's really interesting because so many therapeutic models really emphasize the importance of like developing agency and the and like the importance of like like knowing like the difference between internal and external locus of control. And that like people with like better mental health are able to focus on like what is in their control and to actually like grow their agency and and to feel empowered to change the things that they can. Whereas um, the social justice like subculture basically does the opposite where it like discourages you from identifying with your agency, constantly encourages people to view themselves as having very little or no power um to change things, but then also kind of demands that the things that they should change is everything and everyone around them, <laughs> which are actually the things that like you have the least control over. Um, so you're like hyper fixated on trying to manage like people, places, and things, as we would say in AA. Um, so you're trying to manage everything around you, but you're like feeling totally helpless and powerless within yourself and that you can't even change or have any effect on like your internal experience. So
0: for sure. And like as you were noting like, you know, um, especially when you're like in your early 20s and especially in that scene in Montreal that was very sort of like punk and stuff um, like the the things that you could change about about how you felt you know like are it's most easily done by like eating well exercising sleeping properly you know having like safe relationships like that kind of thing you know um, and those are all the things you're like basically just not allowed to do like in that scene you know Um, Or it was kind of suspicious to be too sort of like on top of your shit um, and to have like interest in, you know, going to the gym or something. Um, I think that shifted a bit. Maybe it's just because I got older too. Um, But I I definitely do remember that. It was like the more like kind of like haggard and like skinny you were, like the better, you know. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember a friend of mine
1: saying about their younger self that they were like, I don't need to drink water. I'm queer.
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's so fucking funny because again Toronto was really fucking different because like the prison in Toronto always like stay hydrated like make sure you've got 10 bottles of water on you so I don't know it's interesting how this plays out differently but Okay, so one of the things we wanted to um, ask you about is, like, your experience with being a canceler. And, like, we have, you know, talked on this podcast a bunch. Like, I've talked about my experience being kind of cancel-y. I was never, like, a hardcore canceler, but I definitely took part and um, cut people out of my life and so on and so forth. But we're really interested on this podcast in sort of, like, any opportunity we can to, like, hear from the cancelers or people who have taken part in that in part because we don't believe in demonizing cancelers and we want to humanize the experience of doing something like that and kind of give perspective onto like why people do that. And also show people who might currently be in the cancely mindset that they don't have to stay there. So do you want to talk about being a canceler?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, This feels really important to me to talk about because I feel like a lot of people talking about cancel culture are doing it from the experience of being canceled, which Mm -hmm. totally makes sense. But I want to see more and more former cancelers speaking as well. And I think part of the reason for that is that it's you know, people write off people who've been canceled by saying, oh, like you're not telling the full story or um, like they want to hear from the other other side because right. they think there is like, right, you know, more information. And so in the case of the cancellation I participated in, like I can say that it was um, completely uncalled for. Essentially, I had a friend, well, a couple of friends who were in a relationship, and they started having what I would consider now to be very normal relationship conflict, you know, around some domestic stuff, around whether to be monogamous or not, and things escalated. There sort of was a third person that got involved, and before we knew it, we were dealing with like major claims of like abuse and survivorship and um, this person being really unsafe. And I think from there, it just completely spiraled out of control. And one thing I think is really funny is that there were a bunch of us involved who all purported to care about things like you know, transformative justice or Mm -hmm. restorative justice, uh, accountability, blah, blah, blah. But none of us had like a single drop of training in any of those modalities. And so we just sort of went for it. We like tried to get this person to obey us essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. And um we really thought that like <laughs> getting a bunch of people to scrutinize this relationship and demonize one of the people in the relationship would somehow help solve their problems which is not at all what happened what did happen is really sad basically we went around, this is like a less online cancellation. Like, Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. I'm sure there were some emails and stuff that went around, but we like sat down and had physical meetings with people who had been in activist groups with this person to tell them that he was bad and dangerous and that they shouldn't work with him anymore. And I remember in one of them, the person was like, okay, well, you know, maybe he could come to every other meeting and then people who don't want to be uh, in contact with him could go to the other ones. And we were just horrified and aghast that there would be the slightest like questioning or, I mean, that's not even questioning. That's just like trying to be accommodating and not trying to like completely expel this person from the group based on. Hearsay, essentially yeah. um so yeah this person lost like nearly all of their friends they lost nearly all of their activist commitments maybe even all of them they lost their ability to like attend things without being mistreated and moved away mm-hmm. um and got diagnosed with PTSD and social anxiety as a result of going through this. Um, So, yeah, that's sort of the story. Uh, It took me a long time to sort of come around and understand that what I had done was really horrifying. And I think for a long time my narrative was that this person had evaded accountability right but what had actually happened is that he had gone to a therapist who were like those people are crazy like (laughs) you need to just bounce like do not listen to any of these people it's not in your best interest to do so um And yeah, in hindsight, I just think that this person was a total scapegoat for all of the anger that we had towards men, towards heterosexuality, et cetera, et cetera, right? We just decided that this person who was making, like, very normal missteps um, was, like, the devil incarnate and that we needed to, like, do everything possible to, you know... I mean basically drive him away and we succeeded at that but to a great cost to him and his partner and um I think everyone involved even if not everyone realizes it yet
2: mm, yeah totally um thank you for sharing that i think that like you know part of the reason why i think people who have been who have taken part in cancellation campaigns or who have been a canceller or sometimes like a mega canceller. Um, part of the hesitation to like look honestly at that behavior and to consider the ways in which um, you know, like the harm causing might be calling from inside the house or whatever, um, is that like if we are coming from a worldview and a framework that says admitting to having done something that that was harmful or that hurt someone very seriously um, means that you are permanently bad, irrevocably bad, and you will be punished and expelled. Obviously this produces the conditions of never wanting to admit wrongdoing because mm-hmm. if wrongdoers are the devil incarnate as you said then who the fuck ever wants to admit that and so i think cancelers part of their strong resistance to you know people coming out and saying that cancel culture is abusive and that like doing this to people is abusive and it's very mean um is that they think oh shit if i admit that i did something like that then i'm going to be treated that way and i think that that level it's like really hard for them to uproot that belief because it's so ingrained and like you know like somebody has to be the scapegoat somebody has to bear the shame somebody has to be the bad guy and so if we're saying you know we don't want the canceled people to be that anymore then they can only assume that that means that we think that the canceller should be that and we're trying to step outside of the whole fucking paradigm you know <laughs> like we're not trying to do it back we're trying to be like actually it's totally fucking understandable that somebody in your position would act in such a way you know that it's yeah. like of course that you would act in that way because you were literally in a culture where this behavior was not only normalized but encouraged you know and sometimes demanded so of course you did and like it's totally understandable and like most types of harm or whatever you want to call it if you actually look at the circumstances, it is quite understandable, like why it happened the way that it did. And the question becomes about like, how do we change the conditions under which that happened so that it doesn't happen anymore? And how do we repair whatever can be repaired? Not how do we like punish and shame and humiliate the person who did the thing that like, obviously they probably were gonna do given the circumstances, you know? So I think it's very important and very humanizing to like share that. So thank you for
1: that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, You're welcome. Here, um, if I'm not mistaken, you ended up getting in touch with that guy. Yes. Yes. We are back in touch. I apologize. Nice. Yeah. I right think on. that's
2: beautiful. Yeah. I really think that's beautiful. And I think like amends in general is such an important like reparative process. And I love, love to see it. Love to see counselors making amends. You know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it feels like the, the, like a good repair from social justice culture too. Right. Because It feels like vengeance is a major value Mm -hmm. in that subculture, right? Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. and I appreciated, like I was really well received by him, you Mm -hmm. know, and he showed a lot of generosity and openness to me that, you know, it took me as long as it did to apologize, you know, and to, you know, take me at my word around that. So yeah, it, it felt really good.
0: I think for anybody listening who may have been a little bit on the cancelly side themselves, um, and who are worried about apologizing, I mean, I I can't speak for every canceled person, obviously, but I do think that so many people who've been canceled, like all they want is like some acknowledgement, and and they they would be like very graceful about it, you know. Um, so yeah, yeah, I encourage people to uh to do that.
2: I did have one experience where I because I have uh, apologized to like I think everyone who I participated in their cancellation, or at least I've tried at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but one person who I reached out to like attempted to counter cancel me nice. Um, because oh my gosh, because they were like really deep in this world and they had been mega canceled like years before, and I had. I had like unfriended them because of it. That was the extent that I was involved, but I was apologizing for that. And I was like, you know, it must've been really hurtful to have everyone unfriend you. Um, and I'm sorry about that. And then they they knew that I had been canceled. So they like tried to use that to like kind of exonerate themselves and also like blow up my cancellation further by like claiming to be a victim of mine because I had unfriended them. So <laughs> I can't guarantee that it will go well in all cases. <laughs> But you know, I think I think Jay's right, usually I think that most most people um, would really appreciate it and probably not try to cancel it for it.
0: Yeah. Um, Kira, <laughs> what uh what prompted you leaving social justice culture? How did you do it? What happened?
1: Well, I think stuff stopped making sense. Um there were just so many contradictions that I couldn't understand. Like an example as a writer, um, There was the idea that you should only write from your own experience. And so I'm like, okay, so I need to write only characters that are like me. But then also diversity is really important. Mm -hmm. And also my life is diverse. Like if I were to write a book based on my friendships, it would not be all white people. And right there, like I felt this clash where I was like, wait, like it's culturally appropriative if I, you know, or possibly tokenizing or some something else Mm -hmm. if I write characters of color. But then, I mean, I don't think I have to explain why writing only books about white people for the rest of my life would also be a problem. (laughs) So there were just like I was trying to follow all these tenets and they were just really incoherent. And. When I first started feeling that, like it was really scary and destabilizing, you know, I think I went through what a lot of people go through where I'm like, does this mean I'm a conservative? Like, (laughs) right? it was was really freaky. Right. You know, and it took me a while to be like, wait, okay, let's see. What do I believe in? Okay. Well, I believe in universal healthcare. I believe in, you know, well-funded social safety nets, you know, et cetera, et cetera, taxing the rich. Um, so no not a conservative you know and again just being able to realize that a lot of what I disagree with is on the level of aesthetics representation lingo right culture war (laughs) the culture war stuff Um, a lot of it like to me it's gotten to the point where it just feels like this feedback loop where you have like leftists being like as outrageous and extreme as possible in order to like really anger the alt-right and then the alt-right does the exact same thing and they're just going at each other and none of it has to do with policy (laughs) none (laughs) of it I mean a lot of it I mean maybe that's not fair most of it doesn't have to do with policy or at least like the real like material um, types of policy that could change people's lives for the better. I mean, class, class is just completely left out of the discussion. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that that's also something that was starting to bother me. Like I, I knew these people that had all these marginalized identities except for they were wealthy and they had (laughs) PhDs and they were sort of in charge of the rest of us, you know, telling us why we were bad and then of course I also knew lots of poor and working class white people and you know when I this this isn't like the most important issue in the world but when I see like lots of different events and workshops and so on like giving like full scholarships to BIPOC regardless of their income and then white people pay full price it started to feel like there was something missing. (laughs) Uh Um, So I think for me, for a while, I just like gave up on politics, I got really into spirituality. And we could talk about the Instagram wellness world if we wanted to. Um, But I felt like I channeled a lot of like, it was easy for me instead of immediately questioning you know maybe I am a good person like maybe I don't have all these internalized hatreds and you know maybe I'm gonna do the best that I can it was easier for me to sort of shift into a new age framework of what was wrong with me right and then I was able to Mm -hmm. look at like what was wrong with me psychologically and how do I perfect my personality and how do I never do anything wrong again? And, you know, kind of channeling these perfectionist tendencies just sort of into a different realm. And then I don't know exactly what happened, but I got tired of all that too. (laughs) And eventually I came back around and realized that I am really political. I really, you know, care about leftist policy. And so I'm, yeah, I'm sort of in the process of re-engaging with that part of myself, but in a way where I know who I am and I say what I think. Amazing. So What's it
2: like for you now, like having gone through all of that, having come out the other side, also now being someone who speaks openly about all of this, like what's changed in your life today?
1: Oh man, I, there's no comparison. Uh, My life is so much better now. I feel like I have agency. Um, I feel like I'm a capable person. I have hobbies that I really love. I didn't really have hobbies when I was in the subculture. Um, and I have friendships that I really believe in. I think that we're in it for the long term. Um, I say what I think. I'm well received when I do. And um, yeah, I write freely. And the other thing is, like, the people that have come into my life as a result of being honest are amazing and super interesting and, you know, it's sort of gotten to the point where talking to some people talks feels like talking to the Instagram algorithm mm, where they're just yeah, <laughs> totally. sort of repeating slogans. Um, and I have fewer friendships like that now. I have like really strange and interesting people in my life. Um, and I think maybe the biggest thing is that like, I am like hungry for knowledge and i am not afraid anymore of reading something that i disagree with oh. or changing my mind oh. and i remember like the first time i went into the library and was like i can read anything in here right like <laughs> oh it's it's been amazing and it's like yeah i don't know as a writer and as sort of a lifelong learner like I can't believe for so long like all it would take was someone saying like oh so and so is problematic yeah. and I would write off like their entire body of work so I've read a lot of really interesting uh, stuff since I've left and um yeah it's it's been great
2: it's interesting because you know in in therapy and stuff, one of the gauges that I was taught to like be able to tell if a relationship is like healthy for you or not is whether or not your world gets bigger or smaller when you're in it. Um, and like that unhealthy relationships and definitely abusive relationships tend to make your world really, really small. Um, and like healthy relationships empower you to like expand outward. And I think about that when talking about leaving this culture, like so many people describe going from a very contracted way of being where they, you know, you're, you're talking about cutting off friends and like, you know, keeping your circle really small and like just constantly cutting out, cutting out, not like exposing yourself to different things. And then moving into this, like, it feels like an exhale, you know, of just being like, uh, mm-hmm. like now I can actually be in the world and like, I can talk to whoever I want. I can leave whatever <laughs> I want.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I can be friends with whoever I want. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's such a game changer. Honestly, it's so freeing. Um, I want to circle back slightly to something that you were just talking about because, yeah. So, like you know, you you exited social justice world. You were just kind of like drifting around in New Age land for a bit, but um, and you sort of like flirted with being apolitical. Um, but you are still a leftist and you have embraced that, or like, I guess, re-embraced it, but on your own terms, on terms that don't make you feel like you are insane. Um, and I congratulate you on that. I think that that's like really important. And I, I really wish that more people who sort of like, um, um, you know, got tired of, of, of social justice land, uh, would do that. Um, but I just want to know more about your politics today and like how they've changed from your politics back in the day and where you stand now and, and what that's been like for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just care about like people's material well-being now, you know, I want people's lives to have more ease. I want people to have more dignity, um, And I don't really care about like diversity within the ranks of the elite. That doesn't really mean anything to me. I don't want to see like, I don't know, just like a shuffling of like which people are hoarding all the money (laughs) I would like us to redistribute. Um, So yeah. Issues like affordable housing um, disability and welfare rates. I was involved in a campaign, uh, I think in 2020 to uh increase the disability yeah. and social assistance rates. Um and yeah, I would love to see, you know, post-secondary be more affordable. Um I think the opiate epidemic obviously yeah. is a huge, huge issue out here. So I recently, I mean. Harassed is too strong of a word, but I had some words with my MLA, uh, which is the provincial politician out here, about um, safe consumption sites mm-hmm. as well as um, access through doctors to drugs of all all types, mm-hmm. um, because I have definitely lost people in the opiate epidemic, um, as I feel like most people my age have. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, at unions, I'm, like, so excited to see, like, union drives at Starbucks, at mm-hmm. Amazon. We had that a couple yeah. liquor stores out here that unionized as well. Nice. Um. So, yeah, I'm down with all of that. I, I care about climate. I don't know as much about it um, as I probably should. And I feel like there's definitely tension out here because we are like a resource extractive dependent province Mm. and there's a lot of smaller communities that don't necessarily have like a realistic alternative to resource extraction as a way to feed their families right now so I'm hoping to see more action around that as well Mm -hmm. um and yeah I'm still like a bit tentative like I I'm part of a Marxist reading group and I volunteer like around election time mm-hmm. for uh, with the NDP as well. Very controversial electoral politics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, have a friend of mine actually said that, you know, part of being an NDPer is being mad at the NDP all the time. Yeah, and 100%. I think there's, <laughs> there's something to that. Right. Um, and yeah, I'd like to get more uh, involved in, in different groups, but at the same time, like, I think we do have different roles to play based on our strengths, mm-hmm. you know, and I think writing is going to continue to be sort of my primary way of reaching out into the world. Absolutely.
2: Um, yeah. And yeah, like we'll definitely plug your Substack and everything for listeners, but you guys should definitely check out Kira's writing because Kira is a very lucid, um, and persuasive writer. Yeah, so super good. Definitely check it out. Um, so, for any listeners who might still be inside the fundamentalist cult like subculture that we're discussing, <laughs> um, what advice do you have for people who might want to exit or who are thinking about exiting um, but are feeling a bit frightened to do so?
1: Yeah. Um, I would say like, just dip your toes in, like, pick a book that you're not supposed to read and read it, you know? Um, Make some friends, like, outside of the subculture, right? Like, maybe there's, like, a crochet group or, like, a jogging group or, like, some sort of space that doesn't have to do with politics and see what that's like, you know? Because I think part of what made my exit easier is that I'd already established friendships that I knew were going to stick with me as I exited. Mm. So I think that's what I would say is like, see about just really, really gradually, like building yourself out a a life to move into. Mm. Um, And, you know, know that like, the friends who really care about you and that have the capacity to disagree will come with you and you will probably lose some people but you have to ask yourself about what the quality of those friendships really is if you are not allowed to change you're not allowed to grow and you're not allowed to speak your mind in them I'd suggest there is so much better for you out there
0: Mm -hmm. Hell yeah so so eloquently put um Thank you so much. Um, We wanted to just give you a chance to tell people uh, where they can find your work, um, like online and and how they can find out more about you.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So my newsletter is at kier.substack.com, which is K-I-E-R.substack.com. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter at kier.substack.com. Uh, underscore here. And, uh, my email, if you want to get in touch with me is kier at substack.com. Amazing. Awesome.
2: Thank you. And I think I'm just going to do a little reveal, which is Jay and I are doing a tour. Um, and you probably see us posting about it online. We haven't talked about it too much on the pod, so I might just slightly mention it now, but we have a bunch of tour dates coming up. We're going through the United States of America And we are going to end the tour in Vancouver. um, The real
0: Vancouver in Canada. In
2: Canada, the Canadian Vancouver. (laughs) And uh, Kira's going to be joining us at that event, which is going to be May 1st. So um, that will be really cool. You can come out and meet Me and Jay and Keir and some other speakers and talk about some of this stuff in person. So um, if you are interested in coming, just keep your eyes peeled on um, fucking cancelled Instagram. And we'll be posting about
1: the event soon.
0: Yeah, and we'll throw that stuff up on the Patreon and stuff too. Um, Oh yeah, just super briefly before we uh, let Keir go. I'm going to just plug our Patreon because we haven't done it in a while. We have a Patreon. If you like this podcast and you want to help us keep it free, uh, you should... Sign up for our Patreon, which is fucking cancel. Patreon. No, patreon.com slash fucking cancel. Patreon.com slash (laughs) fucking cancel. I'm sorry, it shows that I um, do not advertise our Patreon enough um yeah awesome thank you so much Kira this was a really awesome talk it's always so nice to chat with yeah, you yeah
2: and again highly emphasizing to check out Kira's Substack because the writing is top-notch
0: yeah so. it's fucking great especially if you were also kicking around in that scene and you want to sort of read some reflections of people who like someone who you will really identify with yeah like. and
2: also Kira you made like a really extensive resource list um True, yeah which is really useful so if people are looking for like just places to go, like different things to read on these topics. Like there's a really extensive, um, awesome resource list on Kira's Substack as well.
0: Yeah, I forgot about that. It's really, it's really well curated um, and worth checking out.
1: Yeah. So thanks so much, Kira. Thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks for having me. I had such a great time.